0: From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Ross. My guest on this episode is professor and extension specialist for the great state of Iowa, Adam Toms of Iowa State University, a job once held by Norm Hummel, Mike Agnew, and then Dave Minner. Adam is a native Iowan and received his MS and PhD with Professor John Sorokin at the University of Tennessee. Adam teaches a variety of courses at Iowa State and conducts research on physical and chemical management of turf grass soils. We'll be talking soil physical properties on this episode, and when managing those physical properties, consider Dry Jack services that aerate, top dress, and amend the soil in one pass. Sand injection is an efficient means of getting the most out of every sand application with less in the mower bucket. For more information, contact your local Dry Jack services rep or visit them at dryjack.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Adam. Thanks for taking the time to join me. I've been really interested in following your career the last several years. I'm always fascinated when anybody gets going into the sports turf arena like you have as well. But of course, your good training in in root zone stuff seems to have paid off really well. Let's start with a really simple question. Was this the Agnew or Hummel, Agnew, Minner job that you currently inhabit?
1: Yep, this is that exact position.
0: So that's the turf extension position in Iowa next to the famous Nick Christians. Yes. And so you had him as an undergrad advisor?
1: Yeah, I had him as my undergraduate advisor.
0: And now he's your colleague? Yep. How's that?
1: It's good. Nick's been great to work with. He's a great mentor. Good. I've really enjoyed getting to know him on a professional level as opposed to a student.
0: Yeah, that's got to be interesting. I came back to Cornell and worked with my graduate advisor when I came back here. He was still here studying weed science. And that was an interesting uh, dynamic. Graduate school is a little bit different. And let's talk about that for a second. Graduate school at the University of Tennessee with Professor Sorokin, who has been in the news quite a bit lately.
1: Yeah, I did both my master's and Ph.D. with Dr. Sorokin. I loved working for John. He was a lot of fun. Uh, as you know, he's a great personality yeah, of and, course. And very sharp.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so I'm sure you took great interest when the field got ravaged after they beat Alabama, having maybe worked on that field uh, exactly. Did you do some of your time at, at Tennessee working on that field a little bit?
1: Yeah, I helped out with that field a lot when I was a graduate student there. So, you know, it was fun. I, I watched the game on TV here and was cheering for the Vols that day, of course. When they stormed the field, immediately I thought of the crew down there and and the immense amount of cleanup. Crazy.
0: All right, so uh, let's get to some technical conversation here. Let's start off with some soil management root zone stuff. There's a number of papers that your name is on with a lot of uh, collaborators looking at different airification techniques and recycling sand Shockwave stuff is the one I'm particularly interested right now, but let's start at 30,000 feet on this issue. How much do you worry about routine cultivation generally on well-managed sand-based fields? versus native soil situations like you'd have on, you know, school districts and golf course fairways, large expanses of fairways. You know, we have so many sand-based systems now, Adam. How do you think about advising around cultivation when you've got something designed to sort of work pretty well uh, versus soils?
1: Yeah, so the biggest thing that I worry about all the time is the organic layering that can show up in those fields Mm -hmm. and you know the switching from one sand pit or one management technique to the other and that's what I worry about so much and I've seen so often is you know somebody changes or a coach comes in and maybe dictates how they can manage that field or that surface and Now they're no longer able to manage it and maintain that ability to remove that organic matter that can build up. And then they've got a layering issue. And that's where I see so many people get into trouble is that that layering issue starts and then it just kind of spirals from there.
0: Do you see that predominantly on sand-based fields versus native soil fields?
1: You know, I've mostly seen it on sand-based fields from what I've looked at, but there's been some native soil fields that I've seen pictures of or on extension visits and gotten into and I went, wow, that is a a heck of a layer that you've developed in there. Especially on new construction fields with native soil, those are ones that you see a lot of layer and that's more of a hard pan layer that gets developed. You know, they come in, they strip the site, they move off all the topsoil, they get the grade right, and then they wanna put it back down, but they've got a hard pan layer there that has to get busted up on that situation. Uh, and that makes all the difference in the world too.
0: So when you are then talking about airification of sand-based systems and you looked at the uh, shockwave versus conventional methods, right? Can you talk a little bit about that work with Tim? Is it Dalsgaard?
1: Yeah, Tim Dalsgaard. Yeah, that was a interesting project. We wanted to look at the shockwave because we thought in season, you know, you still have to do something to try to, break up that layer, make sure that water is moving down into the soil the way you want it to or in the sand system, depending on what it is. Mm. But you can't have a lot of surface disruption like a pulling of a core would. Mm -hmm. And so that's where that study really focused on was trying to look at, you know, how often could you do this and still have the benefits uh, and they could continue to use the field throughout the timeframe. So uh, that's where we looked at the shockwave compared to, you know, pulling a core and then just kind of letting that system sit. Uh, What we found in that research was that the shockwave actually two directions during the season was probably too aggressive. Hmm. Uh, The turf wore out a little quicker than what we necessarily wanted. And one direction seemed to be okay, except that some of the damage was visible for periods of time. So even that you have to be careful on Uh, a needle time is probably what we need to really follow up against and see how that would do.
0: That's interesting. So just so everybody's clear on what a shockwave is as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a rotary collection of knives that move into the ground to some particular depth and as they're doing so provide some shattering or vibrating of the soil that it penetrates into. Is, is that what we call a shockwave or is this a particular different type of tool? No,
1: that's exactly right. That's a really good description. The blades are set. Uh, And they're offset just enough that as they go in, it not only slices the soil, so you get a linear decompaction or a linear slice through the soil, but it's also offset a little bit so it shatters the root zone down in. So it kind of gives a little bit of a kick to it and has a little bit more disruption below the surface as well.
0: Okay. So one of the things that I think of when we start talking about cultivation is, regardless of the method, In this case, you were seeking, it looks like, a less disruptive way of managing the compaction issue or whatever physical property we were trying to manage there. I think about how this, even on a sports field, but let's talk about a golf course. You've got places where the carts enter. You've got walk-on, walk-off areas. You've got, you know, the first tee, the putting green Places where, not so much the putting green, maybe not the first tee, but places where there'd be native soil, per se, and that soil has a fair amount of fine particles in it. When you did this work, you know, I think about this for gold mouths, those pinched areas. Did you seem to imply you could actually do it too much? You said, you know, going in two directions was too much with the shock wave. Did I hear it right? And can you actually overdo it?
1: Yeah, so in our situation there, that was on a a native soil that I'm implying that we went too much. So what we did was we went one direction and then we turned around and went back perpendicular right away. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we tried to disrupt a greater area. Uh, We compared that to a single pass. Uh, And what we found was we kind of reduced the stability of the surface. Uh, and in return, because of the loss of stability when we ran our simulated traffic machine over the top of it, uh, the turf cover started to wear out and then our rotational resistance was also less. And so I think what we learned from that was one direction would be a great plenty during the season in that, you know, probably trying to go two directions was just too aggressive in that situation for surface stability and then turf wear.
0: This is so interesting. When we airify routinely, or even needle tine routinely. Every time we do that, we're lowering soil strength, right? Surface stability. And even on a putting green, right? If we have some firmness in there, we're losing some of that uh, every time we poke a hole. Yes?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So doing this on putting greens, you know, that are nice and firm and performing well in any way, maybe sometimes does more harm than good.
1: Yeah, I I think there's a a chance that, you know, you definitely can change the stability of that putting green and, you know, you can mess it up pretty good if you, you know, don't get things backfilled quickly and allow it to kind of firm back up before you get equipment on it.
0: Okay. So let's talk about that other paper you did where you looked at recycling sand. This was a fascinating paper, by the way, because this comes up uh, all the time when we're talking about, especially large areas like fairways, right? At some point, you build up enough sand, even if you've got a push-up green or, in your case, uh, you know, an athletic field where you can recycle the sand. So, let's talk a little bit about that particular study that Alex Lindsay worked on with you. Ben was involved in that as well. Let's talk a little bit about that. What did you do? Uh, Why look at this? I mean, it seems like, yeah, okay, everybody does this. You know, why look at this and then uh, what'd you find?
1: Yeah, so we You know, again, it was kind of one of those we were walking around the trade show one year at the conference and looking at the new equipment and the uh, Wiedemann Sand Recycler was out there. And we were curious, you know, what kind of data they had. And they didn't have a whole lot of information they could share with us. And so we thought, well, this is pretty interesting. We'd like to learn more about it, especially out here in Iowa. All of our sand typically comes from the rivers on each side. So you're paying fortune in trucking to get it to the middle part of the state where all the golf courses are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, uh, same with the athletic fields too, you know, the higher end ones are farther in. Yeah, so th-
0: this is a reality for our industry. I mean, you know, I mean, hole and sand, the way where you're talking is even less than what we hear sometimes, uh, in the Northeast where places are even closer. You're exactly right about that.
1: Yeah. And so that's, you know, and that's a, a big issue moving forward. So we thought, well, let's test out some of these ideas and these thought processes of can we still pull the core and then can we shake some of that sand that's left or was in the root zone that doesn't have the organic matter back in to the putting green or to the athletic field surface and leave that behind so we don't have to bring in so much sand. And so that was kind of the premise of the paper. We compared that core recycling device to basically pulling cores, sweeping them off, And then pulling cores uh, and running a verticutter across just to kind of do a, we'll call it a, a cheap or reduced cost, homemade type of slicing and then returning that sand back in as well to the surface. And so that was... Kind of the three treatments that we tested.
0: Yeah. And what I like about all your work, and this is something for anybody managing turf grass systems to be aware of, is you take a number of actual soil physical property measurements, right? It's not like, wow, I poked holes, my turf looks better. (laughs) It's I poked holes, what's happening to the physical properties in the soil. So in this case, I think one of the things that was interesting is it wasn't really much difference in most of the physical properties you measured.
1: Right, yeah, we wanted to look at, you know, not only what was happening on the surface as far as how quickly did it heal, mm-hmm. but also, you know, what's going on at the soil physical properties. And we really didn't see much of a difference no matter what we did for device or method. Mm-hmm. And so that was surprising. We thought we might see a little more of an increase in organic matter or something like that by recycling the cores, but we really didn't.
0: So that certainly is then an argument for you can get away with recycling the sand, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that's absolutely the case.
0: And of course, that's a big deal. Eventually, there's going to be limitations to our ability to put the sand into these systems. But the other thing that I want to make sure we chat about as we're talking about soil physical properties, Adam, is the sort of number of tools that are out there, right? Just summarizing your view of this, right? You did some soils work in your graduate studies. Now you've continued some of this work at Iowa State. You see the various tools, and boy, there are more tools now for managing these things than ever. The question I want to ask you at this stage is, are we airifying and overthinking some of these things that we do? You know, nice to have data on it, but I feel like erifying or cultivating is a solution for almost every problem We don't necessarily differentiate between the tools sometimes like you've been doing. And then also, we don't think a lot about the amount of sand that we have to put down and obviously being able to recycle it in in a lot of cases. Looking at this over your short career now of studying this thing, do we airfy or cultivate more than we should? I mean, is it possible we're overdoing it?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I do think there's situations where we get into a calendar type approach where we think we have to airify so many times a year or affect so much of the surface area. And you know, in many cases, either on an athletic field, the play is so high that they're wearing out the surface. We're not building up organic matter, so we're not worrying about a layering issue there. Or you know, in some golf cases, we've reduced. So much nitrogen that we've reduced the growth or slowed the growth so much that I don't necessarily know that we have to aerify as often as we have been, where people have been on a calendar basis or year by year.
0: Well, and the way I think about it is when you measure physical properties, things like infiltration rate or bulk density, and then you do these practices, you can not only see sort of the initial impact, but you can also see how long. That effect lasts, right? I mean, a lot of the data says most of the benefits of many of these things, you know, are short lived. And I worry that we spend a lot of time, especially on golf courses, trying to get them firm, right? And fast. And it's like ritual every year, we feel this need to go in and essentially rototill the whole whole thing. I mean, we if, if you're on Twitter for five minutes, we're seeing, you know, at a period of time. Looks like we're chewing up the earth with the way we airify on tight centers with larger holes. We're losing a lot of the benefits of some of the surface management that we do when we over airify and sort of over top dress. Or maybe airification is more important than top dressing. So just final thoughts on do you come across these situations sometimes, Adam, where you see like, you know, maybe you don't need to do this as much. You're an extension guy, so you're going to get stuck in this situation at some point, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are golf courses that I've went to that, you know, they're aerifying several times a year, and they're going a couple different directions. And I'm, I'm looking at it going, wow, you spent, you know, all summer trying to get the firmness up, and they keep talking about that. And I just skipped the spring airification, just hit it in the fall.
0: That's right. It sometimes can be that simple. Yeah. Well, Adam, listen, let's take a break, hear from the sponsors, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about uh, amino acids and glycerin, things you've also got yourself involved in out there at Iowa State. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Professor Adam Toms at Iowa State University. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Recently, my travels have allowed me to have conversations with superintendents about spray application technology. And what I've learned is buying a sprayer just because of the color of the metal does not make sense, especially if you're using GPS-guided systems. Frost Technologies specializes in spray technology, so they are your application experts regardless of the color of the metal. Learn more about the exciting technology at FrostServe.com. That's frostserv.com. As we get back to our conversation with Adam, keep in mind that with the variety of nutrient products on the market, having data that validates performance is critical. When it comes to research-backed products, the plant food company puts their money where their mouth is and supports research that validates their claims. Don't rely on just a sales pitch. Ask for data, and then you will see the plant food difference. Check them out at plantfoodco.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Adam, let's talk a little bit about some of this fertility work that you've been around out there at Iowa State. And I'm particularly interested in some of the branch chain amino acid work that uh, Isaac Mertz worked on. I know you're there with Nick uh, working on it. And... This is a very interesting area. You know, Nick's been at this. (laughs) I cited Nick's work in my master's degree back in the mid-1980s. So Nick's been at this. If he listens to podcasts, I'm going to be in all kinds of trouble when he hears this. But he's been around and been doing this uh, really practically-minded nutrition work since his N&K work many, many years ago from his, I think, his graduate work. So it's always uh, fun to see what Nick's working on and you're around Let's talk a little bit about amino acid stuff. What is your understanding of sort of why we started this work? What this work was about? It sounds like another thing where they're out there in the industry, but we don't know much about them. Is Was that sort of the basis behind this?
1: Yeah, that was kind of the the basis was, you know, that they're advertised, they're sold throughout the industry, but we didn't have a ton of information. And we get a lot of calls on it. You know, hey, what do you think? Should we be putting this out? Uh, And so we wanted a better understanding for ourselves of what to say.
0: So when you look at a fertilizer label, it might say amino acid. It doesn't always say which ones. This is a little bit of the Wild West from my perspective. Can you talk about the commercially available amino acids that most uh, turfgrass managers would have access to and how that relates to what you studied?
1: Yeah, there's, you know, there's a, a ton of different ones on the market. And so that's always tough to say exactly what everybody has. But the branch chain amino acids are the ones that we've found that are the most valuable. As far as the ratios go, we find those are the most useful for turf grass growth.
0: And there must be firms that are selling branch chain amino acids.
1: Yeah, there are. How we kind of stumbled into it actually was there was a lot of byproducts of biodiesel production. And so that's where we kind of ended up on that was they were producing those and then they were trying to figure out what to do with those. Several of them have cycled on and off the market. You just kind of have to keep looking around for what's out there.
0: So this is a waste product.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: It's interesting. And corn gluten meal is a waste product too, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's a byproduct of corn milling, specifically like dog food production.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is so great. You guys are into the circular economy out there, Adam. This is a a really great thing that you're doing from, you know, making it out of something that's coming out of another industry. So what's the difference between a branched chain amino acid and a non-branched chain amino acid for those that, again, might not understand this yet?
1: Yeah, a lot of it's in the, um, you know, the carbon branching of those amino acids, as well as how they would connect to the the nitrogen.
0: Okay, so now you have them, they're branched, they have nitrogen on them. When you did this work, increasing shoot density in creeping bentgrass, is the paper from 2020 that you were on. And in that study, it looks like you put urea out. Do you compensate for the nitrogen associated in the amino acids? with the urea treatment is it done one-to-one because the amino acids are nitrogen containing products yes
1: right amino acids contain nitrogen uh, and so we looked at several different methods there and the thought process you know was can we skip a step with the branch chain amino acids and provide that nitrogen in there Uh, So it doesn't have to change any forms or anything like that for the plant to take it up. Uh, And then we also looked at it as a one-to-one ratio for sure. So we compensated or or accounted for the amount of nitrogen that was in the branch chain amino acids. Uh, And then we also took it a step farther and we looked at, you know, could we increase growth even more or economically, I should say, increase growth by providing half the nitrogen from a nitrogen source like urea with the branch chains, as opposed to urea alone, as opposed to 100% branch chain amino acids for the nitrogen source. So we found that we could save some money by applying some of the nitrogen with urea and some of it with the branched chain amino acids as well. Because the branched chain amino acids cost more, obviously, than a basic urea type fertilizer.
0: That's right. I mean, of course, right? There's nothing that's going to be as cheap uh, as that. So you balanced out your nitrogen rates and you looked at combinations and ways of reducing nitrogen. And of course, as nitrogen prices go up, you know, maybe the amino acids are going to be a little bit more price competitive. H- hard to say. But when you studied this, you looked at shoot density, you looked at root weight. Uh, shoot weight, stuff like that. What was it you thought the amino acids, the branched chain amino acids, were bringing to the table that straight-up nitrogen with urea wasn't? You were getting a a greater response, but was it bringing something else to the table beyond just the nitrogen it was supplying?
1: You know, it was almost like a biostimulant-type effect. You know, the straight nitrogen was producing a lot of top growth, uh, and we were seeing as much top growth there, but we were seeing a lot more root growth as well as increased density to the plants. And so that's where we feel like there is almost a a growth regulating response that it was providing us, but yet providing those carbohydrates in the plant then to build a a stronger root system.
0: That's the speculation that there might've been some growth regulating effects. Mm -hmm. Did the ratios matter? Did the way you mix them matter? Were you able to get the same response by using some of these branch chains with straight up urea?
1: The ratios mattered to an extent. We had to have them in combination for sure to get the response. We couldn't just have one branch chain amino acid. Uh, And so they had to be in combination definitely to get the response we wanted and to get any kind of response,
0: honestly. Huh, so what do you make of that? You could say anything, (laughs) actually. And honestly, I'd believe you. But what do you make of, uh, from your understanding, I mean, obviously that sounds like some sort of synergy, so to speak, if if the collective response is greater than the additive of the two or three, you think you've got something synergistic when you put these together? And what do you think is the nature of that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a, a synergistic type of fact. To be able to say exactly what that is, I, I think the research is still ongoing to figure out what exactly that is. And that's, you know, that's the fun part about science is we're still learning more every day.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Now, now, amino acids is not the only sort of fertilizer avenue you've gone down. I've seen your name associated with some of the u products, right? We've started coding granulars with u I, I hear a lot about u all the time. We have a lot of u in a lot of our liquid fertilizers as a basis of those things, can you talk for a second a little bit about your general feeling having studied UMate coatings and fertilizer responses with umates? We see them everywhere, and I've often wondered, do we really need all these mates? and I'm wondering what your thought is about how mates and humic acids play into this uh fertilizer formulation equation,
1: yeah, so this idea came out of the agronomic industry, obviously being surrounded by corn here in Iowa. You get to see a lot of ads and claims. And, and one of the ones that they talked about was, you know, the ability of humates to increase rooting on less than ideal soils. And so uh, that was one of the things that really interested me in, in the testing was no one ever says, man, that's a plot of land that's really got great soil. Let's put a golf course there.
0: In fact, they usually say the opposite, right? Let's find something we can't do anything else with and put a golf course there. And I think the people in you know, Chicago Parkland districts would tell you, mostly in the floodplains there in Chicago. So you got crappy soils, you got humates. Were you able to validate those claims?
1: Yeah, and so what we saw was increased rooting in sand in the greenhouse studies. We tested those with humates. That was a granular product that we were testing. You know, we did see increased rooting, In the field, we saw that we could decrease some of the nitrogen and keep the same quality. So that was interesting. We didn't see other benefits out of it, but we were able to decrease some of the nitrogen with the humates in there. And so that was pretty interesting. Uh, We weren't able to garner any extra information on rooting in the field, so we couldn't actually validate that claim in the field, I guess.
0: So this is the second time we you know, you've brought up the idea of using either a UMate or even amino acid, right? It's not cheap. Right. Maybe U mates are less expensive, but in either case, and especially where you live, you know, along the Mississippi and the farming, the issues with nitrate and phosphorus contamination of the river and the dead zone down in the Gulf, you could imagine a day when nitrogen would get restricted for its use on golf courses or in, in lawns or turf grass areas simply because like glyphosate, the scale at which we use nitrogen and especially where you live, do you think these are viable options for lowering our nitrogen rate? Or you think maybe our nitrogen rate is too high still? We could probably bring it down a little bit in some of these cases. What, what are your thoughts about, you know, sort of using these products to lower nitrogen rates and maybe we could even lower nitrogen rates a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, based off of what we saw, I think that there is some promise there or hope that, you know, we could start to maybe lower that nitrogen rate uh, with these and continue to, you know, not really see a difference in, in quality or playability of the surfaces. And so I think that's a important step moving forward for us, because I do think nitrogen is going to be limited at some point in time. And so I, I do think that'll be an issue we have to deal with moving forward. And then we'll have to lower our nitrogen rates, you know.
0: Well, the last part of this is this glycerin and nitrogen stuff. Looks like it's another waste product. I just think this is great that we're finally getting some data on these things because you look at a fertilizer label and you, you know, you certainly see amino acids. You certainly see humates. It's good that there's data. What is the deal with this glycerin and nitrogen work that you just published? with Isaac.
1: Yeah, so the glycerin project again was a another offshoot of biodiesel production and I'll be honest with you, I was super skeptical when it first was handed over to us to <laughs> test. Yeah, yeah. You know, I thought, "Wow, no way." But it, it's amazing what it did to the rooting. You know, specifically what we noticed visually was that it was taking bluegrass and producing rhizomes at a much younger age than what you typically would see for the age of the plants. And so that was really interesting there. Uh, increasing density, of course. And so, again, it it kind of was behaving similar to what that branched chain amino acids did as far as the response in the plant.
0: So, again, this feels like this is a byproduct of biodiesel. So it's what? It's lignaceous material. All the cellulose and lignin gets burned off, right, from biodiesel. So what is this stuff? Is it a powder? Uh, Is it a liquid? Is it a protein?
1: Yeah, it's a liquid that, that comes off of the production.
0: Okay, so this glycerin is a liquid that is sold as something called Verdi soil. Yes. Okay, how the hell does this increase density? I, it's not a nitrogen effect, is it?
1: No, I don't believe it's a nitrogen effect because we tested it. Yeah. And so I don't believe it's that. Uh, again, I think it's a, some sort of a biostimulatory effect that we are continuing to try to investigate and learn more about what exactly it is that's causing it in the plant. Mm-hmm.
0: But right now, no one can go out and buy glycerin nitrogen like you're testing here. This isn't on the market yet.
1: Not that I'm aware of.
0: But the amino acids and u mates are.
1: Yes. Yeah. Both of those are currently commercially available.
0: Okay. All right. So now we're getting to the end of our time together, Adam. And we've processed a lot of information together, both on physical properties and chemical properties. Thank you for indulging me for the last 35 minutes or so. Your head must spin when you go to a trade show and see all the different products that we put in jugs to sell to people without data.
1: Yeah. You know, that's, it, <laughs> it, it always amazes me.
0: It, it amazes you how many products are there?
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm always shocked by how many products are there. It also kind of amazes me at the amount of people that are willing to take a chance on them too.
0: Okay. So, you know, you've been very methodical at least uh, in the work we're looking at here, particularly in this chemical n- nutrient area, what would you tell a golf course superintendent? He came to you and said, Hey, I got this product uh, that I can use, or I've been using this product and boy, I'm paying a lot for it. I don't know if I should keep using this thing. Uh, what are you telling golf course superintendents and sports field managers when they come to you asking to use products that, you know, you're not really sure about?
1: Yeah. The first question that I always say is, you know, do you have a check plot? Cause From year to year, weather makes a huge difference in just how your course or your field's going to play. And so you might just catch a a good weather pattern for growing grass because that makes the world a difference. And so do you have a check plot? You know, it could be as simple as putting down a piece of plywood when you spray to see how it looks compared to this miracle product that you've got going. So that's my first thing that I always like to bring up.
0: We oftentimes talk about check plots for pesticide use, right, Adam? Because, you know, that what's your pest pressure? But in your case, you're also suggesting for nutrient management, if you're going to try some of these unique products, have a check plot. I like, hey, if you're trying these products, why don't you try using something less of something else that you're currently using? If you're going to add something, why don't you think about subtracting something else? Have you ever approached it that way as well, Adam? Where you know, this might help you lower your nitrogen rate overall, why don't you go this direction and try a lower rate and see if these things actually can help you that way.
1: Yeah, that's a great idea as well. That's the other way to kind of look at it is all right. So now what else can you cut out or, or lessen for sure?
0: So let's just wrap this up on grass types. You know, we study cool season grasses. Um, You probably saw some warm season grasses, and I know you worked on some warm season grasses when you were down in Tennessee. We got a lot of folks that listen to this, that these things we've talked about, especially as you get into the deep south, uh, turf grass nutrition in the south is, you know, a a very different conversation than I've noticed in, in the north. I'm wondering how some of these studies, when you travel, particularly in the South, do they resonate where I know guys are inundated with these products on a routine basis? Have have you ever noticed any differences either regionally or, you know, state to state about how the responses they see, the way they're willing to try these things on? And do you think the warm season grasses, if you had to speculate, would they respond in similar ways to your cool season grasses here?
1: You know... A lot of situations, I think they would respond favorably to a lot of the different products that I think that that would be interesting to see, though, more data on that coming out of there. You know, I think there's parts of the U.S., you know, down in Florida, they've got some interesting rules or limitations on when they can apply fertilizers and what ratios, things like that. So I think they've been forced to be early adapters just dealing with their soils and things. And so, you know, I think the deep south, those areas, sandy soils, I I think they could definitely benefit from some of these products.
0: Okay, Adam, one last thing, then I'll get you out of here. You do a lot of teaching. How's the uh, undergraduate program at Iowa State How's the interest in turf? You know, the industry as a whole has been making a push into FFA. And of course, FFA is a certainly a way of life in certain parts of the Midwest. How's the turfgrass uh, education program going, recruiting and student numbers and jobs and things like that?
1: We're still lucky here. We've got a strong undergraduate program. We've got 37 students right now in our, our four-year undergraduate program here at Iowa State. Great. And what we keep telling them is, you know, they I always say they're super lucky uh, they're coming out and they can pretty much pick wherever they want to go for a job. Uh, and there's yeah. plenty of waiting for them. The pay's is go- coming up each year, it seems like. So a lot of the issues that, you know, were there years ago with low pay, things like that have kind of gone away to an extent. And so I think kids are excited about that. Ample opportunities out there so they can have their pick of what they want to do and where they want to go. And it's a great time to be a student. Uh, we've worked hard at recruiting and I think it's paying off for us.
0: I think you have to, and for sure, that's a very healthy number in a four year program. Uh, congratulations on that. And that certainly takes a fair amount of your time and, and getting this research done. As part of your extension appointment, Adam, you you sound like a on his way to being tenured uh, assistant professor at Iowa State. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. It's it's been really a joy chatting with you. Best of luck, and and give my best to Nick and an old pal of mine who I think is your vice provost or something. Anne Marie Vanderzanden. I don't know if you know Anne Marie.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, she was in our department. So thanks.
0: Thanks for coming. Really appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Frank. Professor Adam Toms, Iowa State University. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. Big thanks to Adam Toms from Iowa State University. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dry Jack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York, by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.